<laughs> of the things that I want to hear over the phone <laughs> at work, <laughs> I have a Ferrari is way at the top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole, and I am thrilled to have with me an old and great friend, Joe Bine, from Chicago. And he is with the violin shop dealership extraordinaire, Bine and Fushi. Welcome to Pasadena, Joe. Thank you, Nathan. I am honored ha. to be here. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just so happy when, when you got in touch with me shortly after we... Uh, launched Stand Partners for Life and, and told me that you were listening. It just, it blew my mind because it was just such a funny way. I never expected to be able to connect with, with old friends in that way, not in real time. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, well, I'm, I, I, podcasts are part of my life and just transportation and things like that and travel. And then, you know, not to mention, I just feel like we're both part of this club of, you know, where our children outnumber us and yes, <laughs> we, need to, we need, we need to seek each other's, you know, help and consult at all times. Oh yeah. So Joe, as do Akiko and I, Joe's got three children and we just had a, a huge barbecue lunch with our three kids <laughs> and they did okay. Um, one of them took a spill from the banquette onto the floor, but other than that, there were no, no disasters. <laughs> Yeah, it was fine. I'm trying to digest two and a half pounds of pork and brisket right now as I'm like <laughs> slipping into a food coma. Well, I'm just glad to be able to talk to you here in the same room, which it's it's always great for me. And um, you're out here not just to see the sun, which is always abundant here, but you get to meet up with some friends and uh, see Colburn, right. Um, which is right across the street from Disney Hall, of course. And uh, just everywhere you go, you, you get to bring that world of fantastic string instruments with you because it's always been part of your life. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I mean, from my perspective, I mean, I just feel like there is such great energy, you know, at Colburn and it's, it has a symbiotic relationship, obviously, with the L.A. Phil. And for, uh, for whatever it is, the last decade or so, it just seems like both of them are just completely taking off. And uh, it's it's just it's exciting to be around everybody. Yeah, it's an exciting place out here for sure, and and a and a great time to be out in LA. And I'm I'm privileged to work with the Conservatory Violins for their you know preparing their orchestral concerts. I'll do some some sectionals there, and I'm just I'm really impressed with everybody's energy and attitude because for some reason they always give me. The it's sort of the seven thirty to ten p.m. slot or seven right. to nine thirty or something like that, <laughs> and I and I won't complain because it's a you know it's a time that I'm able to do it. But I remember being that age, and if you could have asked me at the end of a day in conservatory, what's the last thing you want to do? It would probably be a a violin sectional on some upcoming orchestra program. Yeah, no, I mean, but those kids, it's like they eat sleep and breathe the violin i mean that's how they got to colburn yeah and uh and i, and I recognize that mentality i yeah. mean that and and hope you know maybe they recognize it in me too and that's why they're yeah. <laughs> on good behavior because they, they really they bring great energy and concentration mm -hmm. you know i we do some hard work and I, I just really enjoy my time there yeah i've noticed there's sort of like a just this mass migration of talent 
to this city in particular, you know, from the traditional, from the Chicago. I mean, none, of course, with you and your wife, um, you know, we feel more back at home. It's a different generation. But yeah, but then you all, you know, you see, you know, Glenn Dictoro coming out here and Steinhardt and you see Lynn Harrell coming from, from uh, Houston, you know, to settle out here. And just uh, you have Clive Greensmith and all these people are just, you know, coming from the East Coast and, you know, like me, chasing a little bit of sunshine and trying to sort of be where the action is. You in particular, I mean, you you see so many young violinists and young string players either um, coming through the shop in Chicago or on your travels because young great players need great, I was going to say old great instruments. I, I mean, right. they need great instruments in general, but, um, you know, Bainan Fushi is especially known for the, the older, you know, if you want to call them, some people call them antique instruments. I, that never quite seems right to me, even though they are antiques, I, I guess, because my perspective is always playing them and doing something with them rather than looking at them. But those are the instruments for which you guys have always been the most famous. What is it like to meet, you know, a, a talented younger player for the first time? You know, they come in the shop and maybe they're, they've been sent there by a teacher or they're there with their parents. What is it like to hear them, get to know them and, and start figuring out what they need? Um, well, that's a great question. I mean, that's that is it's kind of cutting right to the chase and that it's just about my favorite part of the business. There's a, you know, there's a few things obviously that I'm, that I love the most, but you know, seeing people on, you know, sort of before things really take off or seeing people as they are sort of on this, you know, meteoric rise is incredible. And our business, as you know, I mean, it's a, it's a personal business and it's a, it's you get to know people's families and it's not thankfully um, a business of cubicles and spreadsheets and PowerPoint and meetings and, you know, big corporates type stuff. Right. Um, I would be horrible at that. And I, plenty of people <laughs> thrive at that, including my own wife, but um, it would be terrible for me. And what I love about it is that we, you get to know people as young kids and, we, uh, you know, growing up in Chicago, I mean, people would, you know, people would obviously come visit us and, um, you know, my dad's friends would bring their, bring their kids. You know, there was a, a, a Japanese family that would always come up to Chicago to get sushi because they lived in Bloomington normal and they couldn't get any good sushi there. And <laughs> so then all of a sudden there's these two cool boys hanging out with us and my brother and I. And so one of those boys is Juni Wasaki and who's concertmaster uh, in Nashville. All right. And, you know, his dad is the famous Japanese chalice Koei Wasaki. And, you know, June is just about my oldest friend. Wow, and, okay. um, you know, so then... June and I are connecting and then I go see him at CIM when at the Cleveland Institute of Music where he's doing it as his undergraduate, um, you know, 17, 18 years ago. And when I go visit him and we sort of, you know, reconnect in that setting, then he introduces me to his roommate, some guy named Frank Wong. <laughs> and he introduces me to his other roommate, Ken Olson. And, you know, it's just, and you see these guys who, you know, end up being concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic and, you know, assistant principal of the Chicago Symphony and June is concertmaster in Nashville. And, um, you know, just like that, you know, just connecting with people at a similar time in life. Um, it's just, it's great to watch their journey because I think, 
you know, musicians is, I mean, being a musician sometimes can be a very nomadic lifestyle. And, you know, and not just a soloist who goes from town to town, but you, I mean, your, your own journey took you, you know, from Kentucky to, because I listened to the podcast, I know this, <laughs> from Kentucky to Philadelphia to, um, to what, St. Paul uh, first? St. Paul, yeah. Yeah, St. Paul to Chicago to LA. And sometimes, you know, our shop will be the one sort of constant in that journey for people. Right. Because it's not, you know, it's... It- certainly shouldn't be a business of quick sales, you know, quick wins, and then you you forget about the people. Right. Um, because, you know, a shop like Vine and Fushi is not just about selling instruments and buying instruments, but um, the, the repair shop that right. so many people depend on. Um, you know, Akiko and I were, we would always be in there during, a, well, my nine years, Akiko seven years in the Chicago Symphony partly because it was so close but then once we once we knew a little better it was because of the quality of the work and then ultimately just as a place to to walk in and to feel at home and welcomed by by you and the other guys there yeah i mean it's a, it's a special place and there's you know there's not a lot of there's not been a ton of turnover which is nice um and the guys in the shop are incredibly skilled and the the focus that they have and the patience to literally go, you know, grain by grain on the top of a violin, um, you know, they're so dedicated to helping people care for these things and trying to give people, which is not something that every young person has, like a little bit of perspective as to like this yeah. instrument does not begin and end with you. Like you right. are the caretaker for this moment in time. So take it get, seriously. <laughs> I would get nervous when I would hand my violin, not when I would hand it over, but when it was time to pick it up and the work was done or something and yes. um, <laughs> someone from the shop would bring it out. I would always kind of be holding my breath like, oh no, what are they going to say? Yes. Like here now is when they're going to tell me how bad a job I was doing at caring for it. And you know, sometimes um, <laughs> they'd say like, wow, they would always tell Akiko or no, they would tell me Akiko has really strong left hand yes because of the (laughs) the grooves in the fingerboard well yeah and and you know they it's amazing i mean they you know they have a perspective and they know you know who wears too much cologne and they know (laughs) you know who wears too much makeup and who you know does this and that and it's i mean it's like a physician and people become extremely you know sort of monogamous with of course who they take their instrument to um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, a component of the business and, uh, but you're right. It's like when we, if, if I'm doing the right thing, if I'm doing my job, um, I feel like, you know, we're getting, we're getting the, the best examples of the, you know, of the most well-known makers and we're getting them into the hands of people who appreciate them and will care for them. So for those who, who aren't familiar with any of the story, your father, helped found Bainan Fushi. Correct. And his expertise, well, well, talk a little bit about him and and starting the shop and what, you know, the special skills that that he had that, you know, really made that into the shop that it is. I'd love to. Um, I mean, I'm so proud of it. And uh, well, I mean, the you know, I, um, like you, actually come from quite a musical family. Right. And I, you may not know this, but I'm also, it's a musical family with deep roots in Kentucky. No, I didn't know that part. So my grandpa Joe, who I'm named after, 
he was born in New York City in 1917 and did his undergraduate at Eastman. He was a violist. Um, but before, but sorry, but they, when he was the, uh, when he was seven years old, the family moved to Louisville. Uh, okay. I have to say it the right way. Louisville. It's like a two syllable word. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, when he was seven, his family moved to Louisville and that's where he grew up with his siblings. And, um, so then, yeah, I skipped ahead. So then he went to Eastman for undergraduate. And then, um, what I'm particularly proud of is that he enlisted in the army, uh, during world war two and was a tank commander. Okay. And he drove these things called tank dozers, which is what you'd expect. It's a tank with a bulldozer front, <laughs> okay. which is a really good place to be during a war. And uh, they had, very, you know, they very, they had almost no casualties because they were safe. And they would send these things through the fields that were littered with mines from, um, you know, by the Nazis or the Axis you know, Alliance. And then um, they'd clear the way for the Allied troops to come come through. So he um, fought in World War II and then came back, um, came back, completed his master's at Eastman. And then meanwhile, my, my grandma Bine, my grandma Allen, um, was a violinist from, um, from Indiana. And she, was, she went down to Louisville um, <laughs> at some point in the you know, late 40s to visit her sister who was playing, I think, in the orchestra there. But sort of, and there was apparently some conductor who was driving her sister nuts. And that was my grandpa. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's what conductors uh, do. And they met there again, you know, and, um, and then my grandpa Joe settled in Oxford, Ohio, where Miami University is. So, so uh, that's okay. Miami of Ohio. And which for those of you who don't know, that's about, you know, I don't know, is it 45 minutes north of Cincinnati, sort of north, uh, you know, outside Cincinnati, um, beautiful little campus. And then he was the viola professor at Miami of Ohio from until he retired in 1987. He was the first conductor, I think, of the Hamilton Symphony and one of the original, you know, and so Hamilton and there's a bunch of nice local orchestras down there, Dayton, Hamilton. Uh, my grandpa Joe and uh, my grandma Vine were, you know, prominent musicians down in that scene. That's so funny. Those, that sounds like those would have been almost the exact years that my grandpa was teaching. He re- he retired from the University of Wisconsin as the flute teacher in '88. Right. So yeah, yeah. almost exactly. It's the, the same, same generation. And so my dad was. Uh, he was born in 1950, and he was the oldest of four. And. Um, my grandparents were, I think, I mean, for me, I was fortunate. They were, I mean, they were incredibly benevolent and wonderful. And my grandma Bine played in the Grand Park Symphony during the summers, actually. Like she would come up from uh, from, oh, from Cincinnati okay. once I was born. But when they had a son, then it was like, you will play the cello, <laughs> you know, period. Huh. And then the next one was born and it was, you will play the violin, period. <laughs> okay, and then like, we have a quartet now, right? And, and then it's like, the next one was born, it's like, you will play piano. Um, and then the last one, the, the last one was born. It's like, okay, by then they may be loosened up to violin or piano. So, you know, he, you know, I, I think my dad was, he was a talented cellist and, um, you know, even he may have even won, I believe the, you know, Cincinnati youth symphony concerto competition one year, like when he was 13, 14 years old, good enough cellist to go to Manus when, um, he finished high school and study with Aldo Pariso for a year. But... Uh, that year in New York, I mean, you, you imagine, I mean, this is a, you know, my dad, he's 18 years old in 1968 and the whole country's being torn apart, 
you know, and he is, he is a hippie, you know, he <laughs> is the like anti-establishment hippie with the big hair. And my grandpa Joe is a World War II veteran, uh-huh. you know, so there is a very powerful, like macro generational dynamic there and, or, or specifically a divide. Right. Um, and while my dad was at Manus, he's living in New York City and he says, all right, I'm going to see, you know, every cellist that comes to Lincoln Center. You know, I've been living in a small farm town. Mm-hmm. I don't care who it is. I don't care. Smart. Um, you know, I'm going to go see them. One of the seminal moments, I guess, is there's some, you know, weekday concert or something like that. And he's looking at the schedule and he sees that there's some cellist on there named, you know, Yehuda Hanani. Mm-hmm. And it's like, who's that? You know, he doesn't know. Um, he's like, but you know what? I'm going to go. I, I said I would see every uh, cellist there. He went and Yehuda, who's the cello professor at Cincinnati's Conservatory of Music and, you know, very celebrated professor there for many years. Um, he was a student of Casals and he's playing he's playing the cello suites because that is his thing. And he just it's he's one of the people who plays it at the best. And my dad was so inspired that then he went backstage and said, I want to start studying with you. And that began a friendship. I mean, you know, that 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 lasted his entire life and 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 continues and as Yehuda is an important part of mine. But while he was at Manus, he also realized, like, you know what, of the 18 cellists in the studio, like, I am, I am not willing to die for my music like everybody else is. Uh-huh. And you know, um, you know, as well as anybody, you can't just kind of do music. You know, it just all your chips have to go into the middle of the table. And <laughs> you just have to be like, you know what, come hell or high water, I am doing this. Yeah. Um, nothing is guaranteed. It is. It can be really hard. And, um, but he realized that that was not how he felt about playing the cello. Right. So he went back to Cincinnati. There was, I think, a brief moment where he actually, he went to Boston as well. Um, briefly, he sold Encyclopedia Britannica's door to door. He really did that. He sold one the first day and he thought this is the life for me. Cause I'm fairly, <laughs> it was incredibly lucrative if you actually sold a set. And I don't think he sold another one for, you know, uh, two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so he quit that and he drove a taxi in Boston for a little while as well. And, uh, and then he was, you know, he was driving a cab in Boston, which I mean, the degree of difficulty of driving a taxi in Boston without GPS is probably, I don't uh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. And, and, uh, but then he was living, he had a girlfriend at the time who was not my mother. They hadn't met yet. And, uh, and I guess, you know, he was a taxi driver or he was a cellist driving a cab. Okay. And he was living or dating. He was living with a woman who was a, an artist who was waiting tables. And then he had this like cathartic moment of like, wait a minute, like, I'm not a cellist. I'm a taxi driver. And like, you're not an artist. You're a waitress. Like, I'm a taxi driver living with a waitress. Like, this doesn't end well. And he say, up until then, this sounded really romantic. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, and then it's just like, well, okay. So, <laughs> um, so he went back to Cincinnati. He went back to Oxford. Um, I think he had a semester of Miami University because it was free, and his dad was a professor there. And again, just not what he wanted to do. And then kind of, uh, so the lightning bolt, the lightning bolt moment as you know, really arrived when I guess he was in my grandparents' home. And back then there were basically, you know, four violin books that everybody had and only four. 
And when you say a violin book... I mean like the Doring Strad book or the Good Kind Strad book or the Hill Guarneri book or, you know, the literature on violin makers. And those would include high resolution photos um for the or... time yeah i mean these would be things that were i mean the hill book was published in 1931 okay and the right. hill strad book you know some 20 something years before that um but then the hama book you know had pictures and and illustrations of or, or uh, pictures of black and white of most known makers and it's you know thick like a dictionary mm-hmm. and he started flipping through these books and and just said he was hit by the thunderbolt huh and was like this is like fascinating and he realized that he could he could remember things quickly and uh and had a very good visual memory he was a terrible student and you know <laughs> barely graduated high school um but he did but it just nothing appealed to him but that did huh. so then he went down to the local violin shop in cincinnati um and uh coincidentally had just received uh, his grandmother i think had just passed away and he had received this sort of a like a modest inheritance of her from her for like about two thousand dollars and he went down to the shop and he wanted to buy a new bow the shop owner there uh, was i think it was the base file shop which cincinnati people would know yeah um handed him a picot cello bow hmm. and then another thunderbolt arrived um, like Apollonia and the Godfather yeah. and uh, and all of a sudden you know like that he didn't realize that could exist uh-huh. and and that's a you know that's a powerful moment and it's one that I you know that we're able to create in the shop he tried the cello bow out over the weekend and when he came back on you know Monday or Tuesday the next day he said all right I want to I want a job here he goes, I'm going to buy this bow. Okay. So even then, you know, he wanted to spend $300 and ended up spending the whole two grand on it. <laughs> you know, so that's a harbinger of sorts to what we do. And, um, and, uh, and then he said, I'll, I will buy this bow on one condition that you give me a job. And the guy said, I can't afford to pay you. I don't have any money. You know, I, I barely am making ends. He goes, I don't care. I'll start anyway. Huh. And so he started working in the shop. And was doing, you know, little things like that, just sweeping up and and being around instruments. And the Cincinnati Symphony, obviously, is, you know, traditionally a terrific orchestra. And so this is, you know, 1972 is when this is all kind of happening and transpiring. And uh, about a year later or so, I think he ends up purchasing the shop from the creditors. (laughs) It didn't, you know, it was about to go under. And then I think his, you know, his parents may have, you know, I think they gave him a small loan to help acquire the shop. And then... um, and then that's how he sort of got into the business. After doing this for a while, you know, he would do what um, he would come up to Chicago. And that's, you know, that's kind of what you do. If you have a shop in a smaller area, you go to the big city, you know, right. and you go to New York, you go to Chicago and you go to the big shop, which at that point was William Lewis and son, which was sort of our predecessor. And very famously where the Beckers worked, you know, Carl Becker, um, senior and junior. Right, and they were makers. Yeah, because. and they're the dynastic family of makers and um, who made these beautiful instruments and, and really, you know, are a huge component of this really rich history we have in Chicago of the, of the violin. And through this, he went to William Lewis and Son, and that's where he met this guy named, um, he met Jeff Fushi. Okay. And he was, he went there, there was a a mutual acquaintance of theirs who actually put them in touch and said, you know, I know this guy in Chicago and I think you'd like him. And I think, you know, 
Jeff, I know this guy down in Cincinnati, and I think you'd, you'd like him. You guys would get along well. And what was Jeff Fushi doing? At, so Jeff at was a shop? salesperson at Lewis and Son. Okay. And Jeff, like my dad, you know, played the violin as a kid. Grew up in sort of, I think, the Homewood Flossmoor area of Chicago, like sort of south suburbs, south side. And, uh, and you know, big Sicilian family. I think a lot of people think Fushi is Japanese. It is not Japanese. It's Sicilian. <laughs> and... Um, and he also, yeah, he was, he wanted to be a violinist and it just was not in the cards for him. And so that was the best he could do is was work at a violin shop. Okay. And so there was a gentleman named, uh, David Finley who put them in touch with one another said, you guys should get together. And they each sort of, they had ideas about building a shop and they realized, and anybody who met my dad or Jeff knows that they were, you know, physically, you know, they were, they were opposites almost in every regard. Um, my dad was tall and thin. Jeff was the opposite of that. <laughs> this and, is a, like a, speaking of another Chicago pair, I know everybody thinks of Siskel and Ebert. Yes. Yes. Not, yeah. And like, just like they, you know, just, and, and Jeff was like a big round guy and had, you know, this huge outgoing personality and, and, and my dad, I think to some was quiet, but not to his friends who knew him. And Jeff was just a ferocious salesperson. <laughs> and, um, and my dad was really concerned with expertise. And, you know, later in life, just everything is different about them. And, you know, my dad would, you know, just wear a gray suit. And Jeff would wear, you know, things from seven different countries. To <laughs> like, you know, and it was this uh, unbelievable personality and presence and things like that. And their skill sets were different. Their personalities were different. They're, like I said, they're physically different. But... They both had this drive to build a big and great shop. And you can't have a truly great shop without that expertise because that's really, in the end, what, you know, especially as prices have gone up and up, that's really what people are paying for. And in addition to a great instrument is to know what they're buying right? and, and you know, who can they trust. And so in, in the meantime, your dad had been just studying and studying, seeing, going from the books to, to seeing real life examples right. of these instruments. So there was that. Yeah. And it, and then all of a sudden it, um, you know, they would make a trip together to see Jacques Francais in New York, who at that point, that was the, you know, sort of preeminent shop, I guess, along with probably Menig's, but, you know, certainly Jacques in the seventies. And I guess they would go and see, and Jeff had a relationship with Jacques. And then, you know, what would happen is that they, he would start bringing instruments out to them and later, my dad would admit there was, it just was kind of fortuitous that a bunch of the instruments that Jacques ended up showing them were illustrated in the Hama book that he had back at home. Ah. <laughs> so he, he was very, he was able to identify them very quickly. Oh, okay. And um, it was right in his wheelhouse. And then, you know, Jacques sort of looked at him and, you know, kind of was like, who is this guy? And, uh, <laughs> And then, you know, like anything, I mean, they just, like any small business, it just a, a tremendous number of things had to go right for them, you know, just to make it through those first, that first year, that first five years when they always talk about how many businesses fail. What happened to them is that they're, you know, they're a confluence of things in that they, they arrived in Chicago, you know, right as things were really starting to take off in the instrument market. Um, you know, you had in, you know, the Japanese market was, was, you know, with the Suzuki method, you know, in full, you know, really starting to gain steam in full force and the Japanese economy, the U S economy, you know, that's starting to really bring the violin and bring real demand for these things. Um, 
Meanwhile, Lewis and son close their doors. So there's another, you know, very fortuitous event that okay. all of a sudden there was a void, you know, for a shop like ours in Chicago. You know, meanwhile, their arrival on the scene also coincided with just a, with this unbelievable wave of soloists. And this, this generation, you know, headlined by Itzhak and by Yo-Yo and, and Sophie Muter and Gidon Kramer and Lynn Harrell. And, yeah. you know, this generation arrived and we sold all of them their instruments. Okay. All of a sudden, you know, in a very short amount of time, a very big shop was built, which was really unprecedented. And still to this day, you know, it usually takes two or three generations to kind of get to where they got to. Mm-hmm. But a num- like I said, just a number of things kind of all went right. And it just, and it really sort of picked up from there, obviously. So what is the, maybe take us through the process of, you know, how does it happen that you sell a violin to someone like Itzhak Perlman? You know, how, <laughs> how does the violin find its way to you? What happens to it once it's there? And then how does it get matched up with, with somebody like that? So that, you know, that's, <laughs> that is the most important question <laughs> and the thing I think about a lot, um, you know, <laughs> well, you know, it happens in a few different ways. Sure. And, you know, first and foremost, it's like there's the behind the scenes of acquiring great things and having, you know, pure examples, having things that don't have issues, that don't have things that are in need of repair. Um, now, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. um, I think I mean anybody would rather deal, I suppose, in pristine examples. Do you guys place a special priority on that? I mean... It sounds simple, but I think we've always just tried to use characteristic examples by well-known makers. And part of expertise is there's this idea that you know everything when you, you know, nobody does. It, <laughs> it's actually incredibly important to, to, to be able to say, I don't know mm. what this is. And so when things would come by, which are, you know, which are confusing or don't necessarily, they don't match examples that we know of mm-hmm. and things like that, then occasionally, I mean, we'll just pass. It's okay. Right. So and, something may, probably a Strad or probably, well, but You know, not. usually if it's, if it's made in Cremona, we'll, <laughs> we're going to take another look. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> the, uh, but I think, <clears throat> I mean, one of the things that's, we have, I think over 1400 names in our maker database. And that's from Andrea Amati to, you know, Will Wedby. And I thought you were going to say Sam Zygmuntovich. That would be better. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm a Chicagoan. I have to say Wedby. Um, And, uh, but, you know, and that includes variations and that includes Vincenzo Postiglione. And it also includes Postiglione School and Postiglione Workshop and things like that. But so even if you eliminate some of the redundancies and a few times where GB Guadagnini is also JB Guadagnini. Uh you're still not actually dealing with that many people. Um, when you consider we're starting in 1550, there are so many more than a thousand people who have made violins since then. Right. 
Um, and we're really only focusing on very few countries. We're focusing on Italy, of course, and, and France, and of course, the United States. And then, yeah, occasionally we'll have a Kuipers from the, from the Hague, you know, and we'll have, um, we'll have Panormos and, you know, English fiddles and things like that and a, and a Contreras from Spain. But really, mm-hmm. there's very few things that are outside of those parameters. So we really just try and stick with what we know. And it's a conservative way to do things, but conservative expertise is really kind of the best way, in my opinion. So then when a, when an instrument comes into the shop, is it, um, <laughs> what's it like? I always imagine that it's kind of like, you know, the, the candy store opens at the start of the day or something and like everybody rushes in and hovers around it. But I, I don't know what really. No, happens. no, that's exactly right. And okay. it's like, where, <laughs> wait, where is that? You know, like, where's the Guarneri? Um, no, that's exactly right. So. There are, you know, there's a process of, you know, it can come to us from a few different avenues. So part of it is, you know, we have, you know, we have 40 plus years of sales. So sometimes somebody comes to us and says, I want a great Giuseppe Rocca. So we'll think about, okay, do we have one currently? And sometimes we just have one, which kind of catches people off guard when they say like, <laughs> I want a perfect Roca," And we'll say, here, All right, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> How do you want to pay for that? <laughs> um, or they'll say, you know, and then obviously other people give us a price parameters and they'll say, I'm looking up to $50,000 or I'm looking up to a million dollars or anything in between. Or I have, I have my cello and I have 300 grand to add to that. And so we look in our existing inventory and, and see if something fits. But sometimes, um, you know, sometimes we're going to get something. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's, you know, somebody's asking for something specific and we will sort of, we will go get it for them. Right. And we will call the people we know who have a, you know, a golden tortoiseshell Dominic Picot and say, we have somebody who's looking for one. Or um, I really could use an Enrico Roca and <laughs> we don't have one. So we go we try and find one, um, you know, one we've already sold or things like that. You know, other times people know that, you know, selling violins is not easy and some, a symphonic mu- musician will will think about selling their Galliano and they'll ask their stand partner or they'll talk about it in the section. And usually they realize it's not something that they're going to do. So they'll bring it to us. You right. know? So then there's that process, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There are, there, there are things that also come in, which are really exciting. And there are people that say, you know, I, I have a very short amount of time and I want to sell this like right now. Uh-huh. And I know I will not get the best price, but speed, the transaction speed is actually really critical to me because of a certain need in life. Sure. And then we start to really, you know, think on our feet and we start to think, well, who could make a move like this? Mm-hmm. Um, there are, believe it or not, there are, you know, we, we, we have a history of, of working with our really trusted clients and selling violins over the phone. Mm. Um, which makes no sense to <laughs> <laughs> most people. <laughs> well, especially players. Yeah. But this is, but we're dealing with players uh-huh. and, um, really buying over the phone. Well, it, and it's one of those things where you're not playing it over the phone, I guess. N- no, no. Occasionally <laughs> it will, especially, yeah. I mean, nowadays people say like, can you send me a video clip? And I, well, that's know, true. Um, and it, it's something, but, um, you know, we can, if we have a, um, if we have a history with somebody and we have delivered consistently to them, true. um, over the years and we've built up a lot of trust and opportunities present themselves. And we say, well, look, there's something here and there's a hot deal. Um, right. And if you can act on it, I think you'll want to keep it. Right. If you don't want to keep it, that's fine. We'll sell it. 
and you know and we can make some money for you right but um don't miss this mm-hmm. you know and then other times yeah there are what what i really like though is that when when i get to approach somebody and they had no idea i was coming uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like say, santa claus is coming <laughs> yes and it's it's a moment where there's something here and I want you to try this and I, I believe in this for you. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not pushy. It is sort of saying like, I, I do, I really think you should see this. Right. I mean, the nice thing about it is that, I mean, we're, you know, people are generally, I mean, they're very happy <laughs> when they, <laughs> when they get things. Um, it's a really wonderful moment. And it's nice to say to somebody like, I, there's something here and I want you to see it. And they'd like, well, I'm not looking, Joe. That's fine. And it's right. like, well, I know you're not, but. Well, I've said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I say, yeah, but, I, you know, I, this isn't something you have. And I think it would be a great improvement. And I think the finances would work. You have to tell me. But if it does work, it would be, I think it'd be a really big jump forward. Um, I think you, and I think it would significantly make your life better and that's something where um you know when we when we're revert when we're thinking when we when we're looking at an instrument and thinking of a person and then when that works you know that is the most sort of powerful type of connection which i'm which i'm definitely the most proud of well you've certainly been in the room so many times i would imagine when when somebody plays an instrument you know and it might be a very expensive instrument or it might be not so expensive an instrument, but but you've been there for those moments when they first play it, and yeah. you see that connection. Happening. Yeah, and it's it's so powerful, and it's such a great moment to witness. And you know, we have uh, you know, there's a there's a something we hear quite so much from people, which is like, I'm just I'm tired of working so hard. And, right. And it doesn't mean I'm working so hard like I'm working a lot of hours, um, <laughs> because that's a real thing too, obviously, with musicians, but um, and everybody, but. Um, it's more along the lines of like, I just, I have to push so hard to get a sound out or my bow does not bounce or, yeah. <laughs> um, I hate to interrupt, but yeah, I, you know, I hear that all the time or, you know, I teach people and yeah, that's one of the most common things, my bow. And I'm, I'm always, you know, it's not the first thing I do, but eventually if someone's really insistent on it, I'm like, okay, well, give me that bow and it, you know, yeah. yes, it'll bounce. But a couple times yeah. I've taken the bow and I'm like, get, you are right. This bow will not. <laughs> you need a different bow. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know my approach is I, sales is about helping people, and you know people come to us with that are they're frustrated, and you know with the amount of time you spend around your your instrument and your bow, um, to be frustrated with something like that, especially for you know for years sometimes, there you know there it's nice to solve that or crack that problem for somebody. You know, and yeah, it's not, it, it happens all over the place. I mean, uh, you know, somebody getting a, a brand new, you know, a, a hillbo can make a huge difference for a lot of people. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a, you know, picot. Right. I know, you know, so many of our listeners, you know, will have played very expensive instruments either on a regular basis or, you know, maybe they've seen or tried um, Strads and Del Jesus and the like. And from your perspective, what... What is it that really good players get from from really expensive instruments? So I get you know we'll, we'll, we're really talking about old Italian instruments because there's so much <laughs> there can be acrimony about it, right? I mean, there are pe- like of people course. set up 
camps you know they're on two different sides like oh it's all bs and other people are like you know no the sound of a strat is like nothing else and right what is it that um you've seen people get when they're spending you know really serious money on an instrument like that i mean i think i mean the one thing to acknowledge is that yeah it's you know not just because it's a great stradivari violin that does not mean it works for everybody Sure. We can, you know, I, it's always interesting sort of seeing what, what clicks for people and what doesn't and how people set up and what they're, you know, how they play is a huge component of it. And Stradivari violins for many people are very unforgiving and very hard to play. (laughs) And, um, Stradivari violins, usually it's about drawing a sound out and it's a, and it's a lighter, quicker, straighter bow. That's a little closer to the bridge than most people are used to. And, it's almost, you know, people almost don't know how much sound is coming out um, when they have it. Whereas a Guarneri, in my experience, is something you really can kind of drive and you can kind of push it a little bit more. And, but for, you know, for me, it's like when, when I see people around these great, great instruments, it just like all the doors are opened and all of a sudden the constraints are gone. And you have somebody who now, instead of focusing on what their instrument can't do, they start to to imagine what is possible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's an incredibly powerful thing. And, you know, the idea of like, oh, this is, is it, you know, is it, is it really worth it? And, you know, this is other 10 things. times better than right. some other. <laughs> you know, the good news is that, no, a, a million dollar violin is not necessarily 10 times better than a hundred thousand dollar violin. Right. It's not that, you know, it's not that relationship. But, um, but what I would say is just like, I think the proof is sort of in the pudding, as they say. I mean, from Paganini forward, there are so few exceptions of great artists not wanting one of these violins. Right. Um, you know, obviously from Paganini to Vuitton, to Isai, to Wilhelmi, to just forward. And of course, into the 20th century and in, with Chrysler and Heifetz and forward. And it's just, they know way more about the violin than I do um, and did know more. And why is it that over and over and over again, the best artists are constantly chasing the same type of violin? And so to me, I think that that is the, therein lies the validity of it. And I also think um, it's also that noticeable. Um, people always want to ask me, like, can you really hear the difference? You know, between, um, I had a, you know, I, I have a funny story where we, I was, when I first started off um, and I was working at the shop and it was around, you know, the week closed at 530 and it was about six o'clock and the, and the, the answering machine is on, but I'm there and I need to get started and I need to meet people and I need to find business and customers and phones ringing. So I pick it up and, you know, this is also just part of the serendipitous nature of the business, which I love so much. And somebody on the other end of the line is like, oh, good. I'm glad you picked up. Uh, I was curious. I played the violin as a kid. I'm here in Chicago now um, for work. And I was curious. I mean, can you really hear the difference between, uh, you know, a, like a, a regular violin and a, and a great, you know, Stradivari? And I said, well, absolutely. It's sort of like you don't need to be a mechanic to understand the difference between a, you know, 1978 VW Rabbit and a Ferrari. <laughs> And the person on the other end of the line says, well, I have a Ferrari. That makes sense. 
and right. <laughs> of the things that I want to hear over the phone <laughs> at work, I have a Ferrari is way at the top of the list. <laughs> um, I said, well, yeah. And <laughs> so he said, well, how about I come in tomorrow? And I said, I think that would be a great idea. And um, this person came in and, you know, ended up choosing a beautiful Guadagnini in an amount of time that, I mean, I've taken longer to buy jeans than... <laughs> <laughs> And, and this person transformed into a tremendous patron of the arts and, you know, has, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 great instruments that he lends out and makes a huge difference in like a, a young soloist lives. Huh, that's fantastic. And, and, you know, and, and obviously that's a big component of our job now is, you know, getting the, getting these instruments into those people's hands into you know that like when you to sort of circle back to you know meeting somebody when they're you know up and coming right um you know catching them before they take off i mean we you know at the shop we we see these kids coming through because the you know the teachers and the parents are looking to you know give their kids everything they you know can to succeed i mean what else do you do as a parent besides try and support your kid and what they're interested in and um, to the best you can. I don't know, 17 years ago, something like that. There's, you know, there's some young kid at the shop and he's talking, you know, his, he's lent a violin by one of our clients and he's talking about baseball and, and <laughs> I love baseball. And, and it's like, well, let's go to a baseball game together. And so, okay. Yeah. And we went to, you know, we went to a White Sox game. It was a Phillies White Sox game. And, and you know, the White Sox, that's not my preferred say, stadium. See the White Sox. <laughs> well, the, the Cubs were out of town and desperate times call for desperate measures. And so, <laughs> you know, we're sitting there eating hot dogs and drinking beer and, and watching this incredible game where it's like you know it goes like 16 to 14 or something like that and you know that's james ennis uh, and you know he's a lifelong friend mm -hmm. and you know we see these kids coming in and, and chicago obviously with the great um teaching infrastructure that it's had for years um you know there's kids who fly into chicago for their weekly lessons you know with the vamoses or with whoever right and you know, there's this nice family who comes up from Georgia and there's, there's three kids and they're great. And, and, you know, they're 12, 14 years old. And, and, you know, one of those kids is Joel Link, who's the first violinist of the Dover Quartet. Uh -huh. And, you know, it's like Joel and I saw each other at a concert at Northwestern the other day and kind of reminisced how we met when we were both kind of like, you know, chubbier little kids. And so I, <laughs> I'm not embarrassed when I say that, but <laughs> I was too. And, um, and it's just, you know, it's great to connect with these people because it's very easy to, you know, go up to somebody and be like, hi, you know, Leonidas, you're really important and I'd like to get to know you. Uh -huh. um, it's more important, for example, like when the new violinist from the Chicago symphony comes in like you <laughs> with the Marlboro Strad, I think is what you That's had right. and yeah. a bow from Finn Meyer. Mm -hmm. And like, and I remember when Akiko came in and I, like I said, I already know when I met Ken and when I met Brandt yeah. and, um, in fact, I sat next to Brant Taylor once and asked him, I was at a VAC, which is one of our favorite restaurants in, mm -hmm. in, in Chicago. And I sat down there and there's communal seating. And I think the first thing I said to Brent Taylor is, are you Russell Hershaw? <laughs> <laughs> um, Russell being uh, one of our former violin colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I had no idea, but I just, I like, I know that person's in the Chicago symphony and I, you know, it just, and, and these are these lifelong friendships and <laughs> thankfully Brant is, you know, <laughs> um, he took that in the best way. Yes, clearly. And, um, 
But no, and, and, and that's what I love. It's like, it's such a personal business. And like my, my, the people I meet through work are, you know, they, they, they came to my wedding. Um, I go to theirs. Um, we have really close relationships and I've never sold James a violin. Um, he has a violin. He has a heroic <laughs> Stradivari violin. There's nothing I can do to help him in that department. Um, I did sell him a great bow, though. Ah. <laughs> um, you know, and that was one of those things where it was like, he's, it he was not asking me for one, but it was like, here, let me, you know what? I have an idea and this, I saw something and I want you to try this. And I'm grateful that he has it. And I'm, you know, I've, you know, these people and, you know, like I said, you're some new guy from the Chicago Symphony who was in St. Paul Chamber. And now he's the concertmaster in the LA Phil. Um, First you know, associate. Yes. A concertmaster. <laughs> yes. And it's like, you know, that's, it's great. And, I, and nothing, I love seeing, I guess like my happy place is like just seeing my friends succeed. And I love seeing people, you know, do well. And it's like, it's like inviting good friends over for a dinner party and you cook something for them and you just, you create something, you create happiness and people are, it's communal and it's just, it's a good feeling. It's like the right type of work to be doing. Well, that's amazing. I, I love that. I hope always to carry that sentiment around myself too. It's, it's easy to, easy to be uh, disillusioned sometimes by other people's success and how much better it is to turn that around and have that bring you happiness instead. Yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, there is, I just, I, you focus on what you do have. And if you, if you're thinking about what you don't, you will, you'll never rest, you know, you'll never yeah. be happy. Well, I mean, that, that's good enough, good enough to close with, but I, I have a slightly silly question um, because I'm sure you guys have gotten, or maybe you still get those calls about, you know, finding the violin in the attic that, Yes. So you don't have to talk about all those times, but has there ever been a time when you got that call and it turned out to be something, at least something good? No, not even close. <laughs> Never. Oh, God. All right. Do you well, you know, the, the, the story behind it is that like, you know, Stradivari violins, I mean, I think it's important to understand like this person, Antonio Stradivari was incredibly successful and a wealthy and powerful person. You know, there are, he was like Henry Ford. I mean, he was like a titan of industry. And, you know, and we know this because of not only the production he had, but also when his final will and testament was found in this like Indiana Jones type moment um, in the violin world, it lists the things that he owned and the properties and the debts he had to other people. And we know about the dowries he gave his daughters on their wedding huh. days, which... You know, when when his contemporaries, uh, you know, the Guarneri family and the Ruggieri's and were giving their daughters, you know, 800 or 900 or 400 lira, he was giving them 5,000. Wow. Um, and there was a saying, you know, as rich as Stradivari, you know, back then and that you find in various points and, you know, and it's referenced every now and then. So, you know, Stradivari violins were being built for the nobility. You know, he literally was building for kings and queens. Mm -hmm. He built a quartet for the Medici. He built a quartet for this family, a royal family in Spain. You know, there, this decorated quartet that's still in Madrid. And so Stradivari violins have always been valued. So it's not like the... It's not like the artist who dies penniless and then posthumously their work is worth tens of millions of dollars. Right. You know, these, the violins that we have have literally been owned by, you know, kings and queens and the nobility and, you know, and people like that. So they've kind of always been in that 
type of home, you know, or <laughs> with those types of families. So it's very rare for something to kind of, you know, slip through the cracks. Um, you know, my dad would, would say it was sort of like, it would be like finding a 10 carat diamond in your attic. Or uh-huh. like if you, you know, if you have a, if you have an, uh, an aunt back in Kentucky who somehow has a, has a Monet, like, Everybody uh-huh. knows, <laughs> like everybody knows about like Aunt Flo's Monet and like as Aunt Flo is like, you know, getting older, <laughs> part of the conversation is sort of like, I hope she's great. And by the way, what happens to the Monet when Aunt Flo kicks the bucket? Um, and so, you know, these violins have been extremely, um, you know, well cared for and and, uh, you know, that, that being said, you know, a, a b- bows will slip through the cracks though, for sure. Interesting. And sometimes, you know, there is a, you know, sometimes somebody will bring us a violin and they say it's supposed to be this great Italian violin and it's not. And they say, and we ask them, well, what's the, what's in the case? Mm-hmm. And they don't know what that bow is and the bow will be a picot. Ah. Um, so and those can kind of fly a little bit more under the radar and, you know, particularly things that aren't branded or have leather on the handle or something like ah. that. But the, uh, the attic strads are, uh, you know, sadly, you know, for many people <laughs> have not sort of come to fruition. We'll put that, put that myth to, to rest then. I don't know if you ever watched, uh, the reality TV show Storage Wars. See, I but know what the, it is, but I've never watched that. That one yeah. and Antiques Roadshow is the one that everybody always brings up to my attention. I mean, Antiques Roadshow has been around forever. And that's at least, you know what you're seeing when you're watching that. I mean, that, yeah. that's, you know, a bunch of people showing up at a warehouse somewhere. So Storage Wars, the idea there is that people bid on storage lockers that they're not allowed to enter. Right. So they can kind of see what's in there from the doorway. And so this, I mean, this is really edited reality tv and so in in one episode they had a guy who saw a violin case in there and you know whether someone gave him the idea or not you know he says to his business partner he's like i see a violin case in there that could be big money (laughs) so he he buys the locker and because every you know things take place out here near la they had him part of the drama of that episode was that they get him to bring the violin to the benning shop out here yeah yeah (laughs) and so they i i heard uh from a friend of theirs um about the day that they shot that scene so the producers said we need you know we need a little suspense in this scene right so um you know when he shows you the violin we need you to take a careful look at it and you know maybe talk up some of the good points or talk about the possibilities of what it might be and uh, so as you know there's eric benning and there's his father this kind of new world and old world Mm-hmm. Um, thing going on there and they could not get the elder benning to <laughs> to act at all <laughs> to to give even a, a sliver of hope yeah. to them so they they had eric and i i forget how many takes he told my friend that they made him do he had to take it out of the case again and again and look at it and and try to say hmm well, this is interesting, uh, you know, even though it was it was just nothing. And so they eventually got the scene they wanted and they may, maybe they put a, some you know, sound effects in there too. And, but then they decided, wisely, they decided to actually shoot one scene with uh, his father as mm-hmm. well and keep it in there. So after Eric Benning and given all these possibilities, they showed it to his dad yeah. and he just looked at it and said, this is a piece of junk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably put a record scratch in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that exists. And it's like, but, you know, anybody who calls, it's like, oh, of course, we're happy to take a look and, you know, come on in. But please do not, you know, the the checkbook is not waiting for you <laughs> when you when you get here. And, and uh, 
But yeah, no. But if you want a strat of your own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, people always wonder, it's like, there's, you know, most people wonder, it's like, yeah, there's about, there's about 600 Stradivari instruments in the world. Okay. Your orchestra is fortunate to have three of them. Right. Um, Ours is as well in Chicago. Right. And, you know, and that's, and, and it's, I'm, you know, we've talked a little bit about it too at lunch. It's like, that's an, you know, that's an important thing for these instruments to be, you know, to be on stage, to be cared for, but also to be on stage, you know, and, and be where they need to be. Of course, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. Well, thank you so much for um, sitting down. This has been so much fun for me. We, you know, I don't get to talk to you nearly enough, so I'm, I'm happy to do it in front of the microphone too. And uh, yeah, really happy you've made it out to LA again. I love it. I love it here. I just, you know, I'm, I, I'm intimidated by being the person after Brant Taylor. And that's like, you know, you don't want to be the guy after Michael Jordan. So <laughs> maybe you can put a couple people in between the two of us as you release these into the wild. Sure, I, I can shuffle it around. <laughs> well, thanks again. And uh, greetings from Akiko too, who uh, she was with us at lunch, but... I think that was uh, the barbecue took it out of her. And we'll see you next time on Stand Partners for Life. Mm-hmm.